Friends of Peace, everyone. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. And that means may the peace, mercy, and blessings of God Most High be with you and your loved ones. Welcome to Authentic Heart and Soul, the podcast where we cultivate deeper knowledge, love, wisdom, and understanding about the innate spiritual nature of life, our journey in life, our journey of ascension from God back to God, from truth back to truth, from love back to love, from mercy back to mercy. God has many names and attributes, and our purpose in life is to remember to remember God. And today I'm continuing my series, Soulful Sojourns. These are personal stories of people and their journey through life. They're going to share with us their stories about their journey, what's been salient for them, what have been their milestones, and particularly what have they learned spiritually as they've gone through life in order to strengthen their resiliency, their fortitude, and their spiritual certainty. And my guest today is a wonderful soul. Let me introduce you to her now. I'm excited because I have a beautiful woman, an amazing soul, dynamic with a capital D. Her name is Haja Aisha Jeffries Cisse. I've known her for a while. She's someone that I love and admire and look up to for many reasons. She is a scholar, a humanitarian philanthropist, a social entrepreneur and activist, a lover in many ways, a lover of life, a lover of faith, a lover of beauty, a lover of service. She's a girlfriend and she's just amazing. Welcome to Authentic Heart and Soul, dear Aisha. Thank you so much for being here. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. I'm so happy to sit with you and to be a part of this beautiful vision, you know, that you bring to us as a platform for expressing our needs as human beings to tell our stories. So thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. As long as I've known you, I've always seen you as this person who embodies spirituality, the way you move through spaces, the way you engage with people, the things that you're involved with. I've always seen you as that person who really puts spirituality in the flow of everything that you do. Can you tell us about that part of you, that part of you that is really connected to the flow of life and the flow of God, the flow of things spiritual, embodying spirituality in your life? Can you tell us about your spiritual journey and that part of you that really takes it with you wherever you are in different dynamic ways? It's a beautiful question, though it's a huge question. I'm really still a mystery to myself. I just wrote a small piece on that, um, discovering, you know, actually who I am versus what I do. Hmm. So that's a new discovery. But anything related to my soul and my spirit, I have to attribute to the mercy and grace of Allah for putting me in the company of uh, what is known as a complete spirit or soul, the Arif Bila, who are the sheikhs of knowledge and integrity that guide us through the path of life so that we can know God, mm. um, know our creator. And I, unbeknownst to myself, without this life plan was just committed to belief and how to live in belief. And that certainly has been facilitated by my shayuk, which begins with the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and I ended in the hands of Imam Sheikh Hassan Sisi. 
And these are our scholars who are understated in the world history, if you will, of Islam as the scholars really of the age. So I was very fortunate to be taken there literally by my Lord. Mm. And when you say taken there, what do you mean? I think there's a spiritual arrival as well as a literal geographic arrival. Mm -hmm. And in my relationships and in my study of my dean, if you will, I always knew that there were two aspects to my faith, the seen, the unseen, the law and the spirit of it, mm -hmm. which means how do we live it in terms of our interactions, our daily interactions. And so I've always been what is known as a seeker. And there were a variety of opportunities to step on a path. We call it Tarika, which is a, a path mm -hmm. to God. Um, but I never found myself able to stay in the company of previous, if you will, scholars and guides until I came to know Sheikh Hassan. And it was through the work that he was doing in his early life, which was building a relationship and a bridge to the Americas. His grandfather, Sheikh Ibrahim Anyas, is known to this day to be one of the greatest 20th century scholars in Islam, in both the law and in its mysticism. Mm -hmm. And they have a lineage that is also among the greater intellectuals, Islamic intellectuals in the world. So when I met Sheikh Hassan, I literally physically went to Senegal, which is where they're seated, to meet him. And I never left. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I never what left. Them. What was that like? Tell us about that. What was that experience like to go there? And was that your first time going to the continent? And how was that to meet Sheikh Hassan Sisi? I think as African-Americans, we have always been in search of our, our identity, knowing in the big picture that we originated in Africa. But with the forced kidnapping and removal, we lost that history. So it was something that I had committed to, especially after having children and learning more about my family lineage, you know, as far as our historical overview is concerned here in the Americas. But after having children, I knew that, I think as most of us, that we intended to go to Africa. Prior to your arrival, you just land at the nearest harbor or where you have been able to gather the most information about departure points or the points of, of kidnapping. And you return there first, and then you radiate out from there. So that was in my heart. But at the same time, I did not know that my Islam was there as well. And my understanding of the book was there as well. And so in getting to know myself better and what I was desirous of, there were circumstances that, as I said, brought me to, to Medina by Senegal which is a holy city and the seat of these great scholars of our time. So it was a lot. <laughs> you asked me what it was like. It's just, it was just a lot. It was a lot of joy. There was a, a sense of completion because I began to see where our beginnings and where the source of our cultural nuances are. You know, so we had that part of it, the cultural identification, if you will, ethnic identification. Um, but the... The greater part of that journey was really meeting my Lord and knowing my prophet. Beautiful. So through that relationship, mm -hmm. you were able to dive deeper into the ocean of um, faith and, and Islam and getting closer or getting to your Lord, getting to Allah and yeah. the prophet, alayhi um, Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. We all need teachers. We all need guides. It's a traverse that shouldn't be done alone and many people will argue oh I can find my way but you really need a guide every prophet had a teacher from Hida to the Allah 
you know, guiding them and, and, and escorting them, if you will, through their mission and their purpose in life and getting the deeper relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And so we, as humans, certainly need that same thing. And this is where our shakes play an important role. Shakes who are known to be, as I said, you know, of knowledge mm-hmm. and of excellent character. Mm-hmm. And you said something earlier, the word was it unknown or undervalued in terms of the shuk from West Africa. Can you speak to that again? Yes, I think that as in all of our global society, the attitude of a supreme white being <laughs> um, permeates <laughs> the entire globe. Um, we can see it in colonialism. We can see it in the racial constructs of America. We can see it throughout the diaspora where the colonizers, uh, you know, arrive. And so even that seeps in, those biases seep into and have seeped into Islam. But when one reflects and one knows the origin of these biases, it really began in the unseen, in the divine revelation. Allah tells us that shaitan was the first to challenge Allah on the quality of another human being versus his nature. Mm-hmm. which he thought he was superior. And I know that is the premise for the divine premise, if you will, of how human beings have adopted that same behavior. So it's always, it, they created a lesser than and greater than. So the history of Islam, you know, really understates the contributions of Africans to its preservation and to its persistence. And it's interesting. I took a course recently called the African Quran in which uh-huh. Dr. Bilal Weir talks about how much of the stories and the prophets, peace be upon them all, mm-hmm. and the circumstances in those stories takes place in Africa. So it's, exactly. really, it's really amazing how disconnected we are from that. And when I say we, I mean the collective we, when you think about mainstream Islam, it's been Arabized, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, how long had you been Muslim when you went there? About 15 years. But I knew from the day that I received Quran in my hand that there was something beyond the law. You know, there's, there was just an absolute completion mm-hmm. of revelation that mm-hmm. didn't just, li- was it literal and didn't have just this sort of one-legged approach to it, mm-hmm. meaning the law. Mm-hmm. And that there was something that refined the law to make it livable and be present in all of our actions. And so there was a, a desire, as I said, a deep desire to unlock that knowledge as much as the law. You know, um, it's just as important to mm-hmm. not abandon the law right. once we come into what we think are higher insights and higher knowledge. But I also see a movement to, as Allah is going to restore and has always protected Islam, but to restore the truth even of its history. So those contributors, those who have made contributions, great contributions, those who hold this religion up, it's in the seat of Africa mm-hmm. and it's in that scholarship. Mm-hmm. And even at the time of the Prophet Wasallam, his companions, those who surrounded him were of African descent. Mm-hmm. Clear history to confirm that his most intimate companions among them mm-hmm. were the dark, animated, absolutely beautiful dwellers of, of Africa. Absolutely. Let's talk about some of the work that you've done here and in Africa 
as part of your service to humanity? Oh, I was born of servants, if you will, of humanitarian, um, compassionate people to my first grandmother, if you will, and my first grandfather. And Hidma, which is a word for service, is very important pillar of our faith and definitely in pursuit of understanding who Allah is to serve humanity. Um, so that's, that's one of the central pillars, if you will, to successful insight into who we are mm-hmm. um, and who God is. And so I was blessed to arrive in Senegal at a time that I was successfully associated with some historical figures here in the United States and in Atlanta in particular, public sector governance, mm-hmm. historic administration of Maynard Jackson, Andrew Young mentoring over the, under them. Uh, ultimately working to serve one of my peers, Mayor Shirley Franklin is a very good friend. And we were raised, if you will, in that generation of thinkers and change agents um, together. So to see her arrive in leadership. And so with that, I also was understanding the environment of our politics was so toxic. How could I reconcile that with my faith? Mm -hmm. Um, And by that, I mean, there were issues that were beginning to come into that were forming in terms of how we socialize and how we take care of those in need and seeing just how we traded those responsibilities all for the sake of power Mm. and politics. Mm -hmm. So when I arrived at Sheikh, I was in a dilemma about my scholarship. Um, I have advanced degrees in public policy. And how was I going to use this? Or did I have to like, to be Muslim, was I going to have to abandon you know, all I thought I knew in that vein to serve God. And it just was a matter of Sheikh Hassan's stellar, 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 stellar shaping of my life and influencing my life and guiding my life. It was just about changing my intention as mm-hmm. to how we use that knowledge and how we um, can continue to build on our secular education, but put it into, uh, you know, deeper and better service and not abandoning those who mentored me to that point. My first opportunity to serve Islam and under his guidance was to facilitate a presidential visit, uh, a historic visit by President Abdujuf to the United States to meet with our president at the time. And so I worked very closely with all those tools I had gathered, all that network, all of that knowledge. And the assumption is that all Black people know all Black people, no matter where they are, is not correct. <laughs> and he certainly was interested, along with his uh, if you will, his visit with the president um, and meeting the leaders of African descent here in the United States. So that was my first assignment. And she showed me through practice exactly how um, we can be on this path with the knowledge that we have and have a change of intention Mm -hmm. in its application and not have to abandon that which we were given. So tell me a little bit more about that. What was the presidential visit and who did you bring together for that? And what was the outcome of that? It was a state visit, what we know in the diplomatic world as a state visit. And he was meeting with President Bush at the time. And President Bush? That, did you President say- Bush, the first George Bush. Okay. And in that was a state visit that you know, a presidential state visit. And so within that context and in that time, he, as I said, wanted to meet leaders of African descent here. So that included um, Ambassador Young, that included the Maynard Jacksons, that included across every sector mm-hmm. of American life, 
-hmm. identified those leaders, identified those innovators and brought them together in Washington for mm -hmm. dinner. Okay. And uh, other social events along with the ambassador from Senegal. Mm -hmm. And it was quite successful. I felt really proud, but it was weighty because I was doing this for Allah's sake. And there are things that we don't reveal in quiet diplomacy, if you will, but that was a very important meeting. And it was, it reminded me of the meeting that Hajj Malik had where there were no non-melanated people in the room, if you will. Everyone in the room was African descent and they became fathers and they became husbands and they became, along with their leadership, they had conversations around those various roles, if you will, and our aspirations and our relationship and obligation to Africa and Africa to us. So those stories have been erased in the memory of Africa as well, our kidnapping and removal. Those stories of what happened to us Mm -hmm. are not in the necessarily found in the narratives of the historical experiences of Africa as we imagine them, if you know. They're not something that um, doesn't require us to pour into our African ancestors um, what actually literally has been going on here. And we are victims of, um, if you will, representational injustice, how we're presented to the rest of the globe. Mm -hmm. as African-Americans. And so, you know, we um, have to tear through those distortions as well as we reunite. And uh, to this day, um, what Sheikh Hassan has done is resulting in marriages, deep reconnection, assuring a promise with a connection back to Africa. All this to me represents the reparations we see um, is to have this deep um, this deep commitment to Africa. When you say marriage, are you saying literally? Marrying, literally, yes. Our like children, American children across, of yes, got of it. The families in Africa, there. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things we go to learn. We immerse. They come here to immerse in culture and art and education, and they come to us as family members. You know, so those relationships were intentionally developed. Mm -hmm. um, the bonds reinforced, mm -hmm. and the trust in mm -hmm. Allah and our Sheikh that, you know, we uh, have each other. Mm -hmm. We are responsible for, for the success of one another. Every culture or every ethnic group rather here in America has a relationship, especially Eurocentric, but not even just Eurocentric. Every other culture has a relationship back to their origin that mm -hmm. they advocate for, that they lobby for, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. they, you know, um, or voice here in America and helping and serving and providing for with their wealth and then their power and their mm -hmm. influence. And so this is the connection that we intentionally built with Sheikh Hassan's leadership. At the time. Beautiful. So that was, it persists that was, till today. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. So that was one of the outcomes and continue yeah. to um, benefit and flourish and evolve mm -hmm. from that. Okay. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So you are also involved with right now an advocacy for graceful and revisioning what it means to age as a black woman. Can you talk about that? Your group Aging in Black is a very dynamic group. I was blessed to be added to the group when you first formed it and I had no idea what I was in for. <laughs> um, you, you are such a dynamic curator of content from beautiful imagery. And I think that's definitely one of the things that you're committed to is changing what 
aging looks like in the information sphere, if you will, what is the purpose of aging in black? Because it's very unique and nuanced, particularly because of the reason that you were inspired to create it. What was the inspiration and what are you doing through how you curate content? And let's start with that. <laughs> well, it all links back again to our uh, commitment to our faith and to serve humanity. But in this instance, Aging in Black Notes to Women of Color is a group that I started on Facebook after caring for my mom okay. who came to complete her cycle, this particular phase of life with us. And I, at the same time, was midlife myself. And so in supporting her, I began and became very curious uh, even more curious about the phases of life and in particular what it was like to age in a world that really is telling us that we're invisible um, that is bereft of compassion for the elder and respect for the elder um, and I'm just going to share things that I've learned so far or intuitively know and then the things you actually experience in the culture that is anti-aging and it just isn't about a faith cream. It really is a rejection of that phase of life. Mm. Um, it is shamed. As I said, it is mean. It is considered irrelevant. And um, we're, as a result, not caring for that phase and the people who occupy that space. Um, and now I believe anyone 60 and over is becoming a part of that space. And I know that generations behind us aren't prepared to age in a mm. new age of technology and digital, you know, um, acuity. And so when I stepped into creating the group, I had no idea the size of the problem um, and the need for having a space that elevated this phase of life and informed it. You know, many of us just focus on retirement and that we, we think that we are prepared uh, mm -hmm. for this journey um, and then come to realize that we're not. Uh, we're not aging successfully in many cases. Um, we're not aging healthy. We're not aging wealthy. And we've abandoned in some way. I won't say abandoned. We don't have any place to deposit the wisdom that we've accumulated as mm -hmm. wisdom keepers. And so our relationship between generations is broken and needs to be healed. Um, I realized that it is a misnomer to think that at this stage and various stages of later life that we have to be taken care of, you know, and institutions have been developed to do that and, you know, um, just abandon the responsibility within families, which I know historically, at least up until my generation, watching our parents, that we were responsible for the care of the elders in the family. But we're also a modern elder, my generation, 60 and over, um, is not the same elder as even my mother, who lived to be 103 when she was, you know, traversing those years. We're much better educated. We're in better health. We've had broader experiences. As a result, we have a lot of value to add to the society, but the society is not taking full advantage of our knowledge and our wisdom. Mm -hmm. And it comes through generational relationships. So I started the group, like I said, not really knowing the magnitude of the problem or the need. And the response has just really been pretty overwhelming. I tried to remove the group at the early. 
establishment because I said, well, maybe I've waded into the water and I have too many knowledge gaps, you know, to do this. But the response was so really huge. Like you can't not do this. And right. the doing I'm talking about is really just lending is providing, uh, becoming a resource, but also the imagery, also the content, also the taking back of the negative language and the negative lexicon, the broken lexicon. This is a modern elder. Mm-hmm. Um, that elder has a great opportunity to live longer. And in doing so, we have to figure out how we're going to live in a very healthy way through an additional 30 years of life. We may live to be 100. Mm-hmm. So we're at 50, we're just halfway through, if you will, the secular definition of, of phases. And so we have an opportunity, as I said, to heal, to heal both ourselves, to heal our culture, and to heal the relationship between generations. Hopefully that's what we'll do. Beautiful. I'm looking at one of your posts that you did yesterday. Beautiful image of a a young girl. Yes, one of our daughters. And your caption says, let's liberate the term elder from the stigma of elderly. I like that. Talk talk a little bit about that. Um, Elder as restoring, as I said, respect and honor and value to that term, elderly meaning it is now you have been put on a track of a deterioration of irrelevancy, of invisibility, you know what I mean, as doddering and teetering around and it's totally um, been monetized even to create that perception because we have a system that you anticipate being sick and broken and immobile and, you know, dependent. And that is not necessarily how we will arrive at our last days, mm-hmm. we don't have to arrive broken. We don't have to arrive broken as we age. And you, yeah. another part of what you said on this post, meditate on I grow whole, W-H-O-L-E, not old mm-hmm. by embracing wisdom as my path. That's beautiful. Yeah, again, it's taking control of a lexicon and taking the power back in a representational way. Um, as much as how we speak to ourselves and how we're perceived self-perception in this. Mm -hmm. Um, I really know that language obviously is extremely important and what we hear and embrace and what is out there for us to to reflect on just really is bereft of anything that is honorable, (laughs) that is elevated, that actually reflects who we are, Mm -hmm. you know, um, at this time. And so even the marketplace is realizing they've got over, uh, I would say, 70 million people who are 60 and over. Mm -hmm. And that number is growing, meaning among the millennials uh, who are becoming into the 50, the higher end of the millennials will be coming into those numbers. Probably another increase of 16 percent will have, you know, uh, tens of millions of people who are going to be underutilized unless we push back on that. Mm -hmm. So, and that's just the point of the group. It intends to push back on, on all the stereotypes and double marginalization of mature women. Mm-hmm. And you're working to redefine the modern elder with dignity and grace and beauty and hope and resiliency and strength and mm-hmm. uh, dynamic existence. Yeah, yeah. So we will always be making contributions. There was a time when we lived together. Technology has separated us, meaning we can live as, you know, anywhere in the globe. And that means abandoning our core family, our core communities, you know, when you're young. 
you make choices or and then you realize that there are times in life where this distance becomes problematic when you need to get back home for nurturing when you need to get back home for rituals when you need to get back home for care it's not always possible Mm-hmm. And so we have to think of ourselves as having a regenerative community wherever we stand. You know, now we have to intentionally create those communities. But we also will have to build and design spaces where, you know, there's an integration of generation, there's an integration of caring, there's an integration of revival um, in both the land and in the human beings that occupy that land. I don't like segregated housing seniors. That was another way of isolating. Mm-hmm. And COVID really, really, really highlighted just how dangerous we've been living separated. And elders were the first to suffer in this COVID debacle and um, left in isolation those who weren't institutionalized, which was in another turn to be a very another dangerous environment for them. At this time, they were separated from the families that were connected to those who resided there as well. And so it was... Um, something my family and I decided that we were going to care for the elders if they trusted us, that we were not going to leave them in isolation because they had so literally interpreted these, so, these so-called protocols mm-hmm. and were being left in uh, absolute isolation where they couldn't shop, they couldn't keep themselves in their spaces. They were deteriorating mm-hmm. in that isolation. Um, and so, as I said, personally, we realized that caring was very much a part of our protocol. If we didn't care, we were certainly going to weaken and be in some form of demise so that we take the 50-50 chance of caring for others outside of ourselves and staying committed to that. Elders were very much a part of that. Again, it's a period of life where changes are occurring, but there are also ways to assure that we don't deteriorate and we take care of our health. And that care of our health has to be, really should be beginning at birth because we need to bring this phase of life back into the mainstream of living. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so you prepare for that, just like we have these, these rites of passage, you know, for adolescents, even though I have some issues with how we're defining it in a secular way of these phases of life, that we have to reinsert this phase, this phase of becoming whole and mm-hmm. becoming older and becoming okay. whole into the culture. How do you see that in terms of establishing some ritual perhaps of embracing elderhood or cronehood uh, as Mm -hmm. some would call it just like we have rites of passage for young girls should we have a rites of passage for beautiful elderhood or something that's celebratory and dignified and one of the things that I know you take a stance for and really against is the fetishization of youth such Mm -hmm. that we even have some, it brings some of that fetishization into the aging process. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think we're a culture that's just obsessed with youth and thinking that we can avoid the natural evolution of life, you know, existing from a pre, you know, pre-birth to resurrection. Um, that's a spiritual insight into how the phases of life reveal themselves. And I really know that Um, we can re-educate ourselves in the making of this contemporary elder. And that means hoping to create a platform, an institute, if you will, um, and how we are able to take all of what we have left to give and uh, reimagine that and, you know, re-enter it into the mainstream. And it can happen, too, in the workplace where 
you have power being shifted to very young people who don't have a lot of life experiences, even though they're very successful in this digital age, the information that they have, but they lack wisdom. Wisdom is really something that is part and parcel to success of a culture. And that means those opportunities to transfer knowledge into the culture and into those who occupy those spaces of energy and youth and be able to take this swath of life, say from 45 to 65, where there's no safety net right now for the support of that age group. And so we create these transition points, you know, for other stages like puberty and graduating from school and getting married. But there's very, very um, little that is done to prepare ourselves to, for longevity and a healthy arrival, if you will, to reach the end of life. Um, and it's not morbid. It's sort of a pivotal fork in the road when you reach midlife, um, which is some say between 45 and 50. And in a culture that says that you're irrelevant even earlier than that, and it leaves us feeling, you know, disoriented and in some cases, literally worthless, unless we have enough insight to know how to take what we have and pour it in immediately, say, to family, to those generations. It's a struggle sometimes to even sit down with family, but that's the immediate space in which we can begin to share our experiences and learn from them. I make it a point to sit among the generation behind me and younger because when I'm in the room with them, I leave much smarter. I, they stand on my shoulders, but I see over the trees of my experience because of the information they feed into me. So it's sort of being a mentor and a, a learner, <laughs> um, hybrid at the same time. I'm learning from them things that inform my wisdom, that make my experiences relevant for the age, and be it in the workplace, being in family life, and in my personal life. So it's almost like the art of how do we really live from the ages of 50 to our end of life, which is an additional estimated to be uh, additional 30 or 40 years beyond 65. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that securely? How do you do that in a healthy way? And how do we do that taking all of our intellectual capacity and figuring out what we can become a master of in the acquisition of new skills and new contributions? Mm -hmm. Paint a picture for us of that contrast, the imagery that we see traditionally in the media about aging for Black women and how you want to change that. Paint a picture of what it is and how you want it to be, if you can describe it graphically. Um, just take the meme of seeing elders who are in love who embrace, who might be intimate or express their affection, for example, and have somebody go, ew, <laughs> just because, unfortunately, of their age. So that's the kind of imagery you'll see. It's ridiculed, it's marginalized, it's reduced to a joke or something distasteful. When we are human beings, always needing love and compassion and companionship. In some instances, you may have to rethink what intimacy is. And you bring that into the public square where you will see aging couples together. You will see them affectionate with one another in the household. We can take the arts to express those same human aspects of aging through the arts as well. I had started before COVID. I made a deep connection with a consortium of artists who were working with women of color and their daughters, like two generations of women to take control of how they were represented in the community. You know, at a certain age, we're 
portrayed as oversexed and even down to our girls and our daughters that, you know, we're lost and wondering and traumatized and all of this. And it's completely the opposite, though. There is trauma. There is a need for mental wellness and healing. But that is not all of our story. Mm-hmm. So what this group of artists has done was put cameras and knowledge in the hands of the daughters and the mothers. And they came up with a beautiful exhibit of new images that define the stages of life and these relationships. And it was on exhibit at the Met for more than eight months. They had very, very good relationships that put that exhibit and held it in place for eight months at the Met. So we were working on adding the third generation of women, which would be the elders of the community, the grandmothers of the community. And when I say grandmothers, we should not imagine, again, someone in a wheelchair, in, in, a, in a diaper. You know, I mean, that's all you see. That's really all you see. Or us striving to look like our daughters, to feel relevant, to feel beautiful. I don't need to be in seven-inch heels. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I can wear them if I choose, but not because I'm grasping for a way to be seen in our culture. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And consider relevant and rejecting the natural uh, progression of a growing uh, whole. And so um, it's, it's, I think that's an example you might find useful. I, I love the imagery that you are committed to as you curate content for the group. Where do you source them? And it's just so vibrant and rich. Tell us more um, about that. And it's just, everything is so um, inspiring. I'm, I'm, there's so much inspiration through the content you create and mm-hmm. the, the messages that you combine with them. It's always a message of inspiration and deeper reflection and upliftment and beauty and celebration. Well, I made an intention because out of necessity, there was nothing as we use the internet and Google, they have their place to look for imagery. And if you put in the keywords, there was nothing coming up that showed, if you will, as I said, the modern elder, the contemporary elder, or very little. And I began to research, starting with the arts, starting with painting and photographers and painters uh, and looking for images that reflected the beauty in our blackness, you know, the beauty in our strength, the beauty in our gray hair, the beauty in our changing bodies as we go through one of the most powerful physical changes, which is menopause, showing us in those various stages and various shapes and sizes and with a deep beauty. And it wasn't all about finding if you will, the more youthful side of that, it was also bringing respect and honor to the plaited gray hair with the wrinkled and bent finger and showing the power and the glory in that part of growing whole and returning to Allah, because that's what this entire journey actually is. It's from um, pre-manifestation to the day of resurrection. All of that is life. Mm -hmm. And all of that, those phases bring changes um, and it brings confusion as well. And it has guidance for how to successfully arrive mm-hmm. and land in a, a beautiful and honored way in these stages. And what do you mean by confusion? It brings confusion. Well, I think there's, um, for instance, take puberty. You know, we take it where that stage of life is really a body changing hormonal shifts. And those hormonal shifts occur in midlife as well. And so we 
begin to feel a sense of disorientation and talking to women and having my own experience, like, what do I do with this body that is, it hadn't been clearly explained to me what was actually happening to me, number one, and how it was described was always in a weak state, you know, um, weakened, annoying, quote unquote, perception, you know, of that process. And so I think the knowing what to do and how to empower ourselves in each of those moments and be carried by support that we are going to have to recreate in our culture where women gather and take strength from childbearing to, like I said, through menopause, what those stages look like and how we need each other and how we own each other. And it takes away from figuring things out in a vacuum. You know, between the modeling and the actual sharing of experiences, we become centered. So what are some of the things that you hope to do through the group and with Aging in Black Notes for Women of Color? What are some of the goals that you are reaching for? Well, I ultimately hope that I can build a community, like a physical community, where we gather and do workshops if you will, and have a variety of regenerative sessions and opportunities. A sort of a midlife wisdom school (laughs) is what I'm hoping for, where we can begin to prepare our daughters and refine ourselves in this process. And knowing that this stage of life really has um, a great deal left to, to master. So, you know, going through a process that helps us identify our next set of goals, you know, our current set of strengths Mm -hmm. and be able to build and pursue both career wise and personally, and being able to set out a map, if you will, or a path to continue to live a full life. And so there's a lot that comes through with processing and seeing some cutting edge thinkers. And there are not a lot of us out here focused on aging and we're ignorant of who, who is really living on the planet right now. How these 60 or 70 million people who are 50 years and older were only geared towards looking at life as going somewhere and sitting down. Um, though it was actually being lived out differently, the public square didn't recognize it as that. And so we, we were, like I said, underrepresented and underutilized. So to come back and recreate a, a map for our furtherance and empower ourselves with those decisions and choices so anything from creating our next business to creating a social enterprise. I said earlier that this is a stage where we're generative, meaning we need to nurture something. Mm-hmm. That's why you'll find the approach when you have generations in a room. We're so eager to, to give wisdom. We just have to learn how to communicate better and have a, a receptacle, meaning in the generation behind us, that's open to being poured into like that, but also receiving mm-hmm. what they have, mm-hmm. as I said, information and knowledge, and then we strengthen and mm-hmm. elevate each other in the in the society. But it is not a time that we, because we're 60, that suddenly we've become a burden on society. You know, we're pushed into that because of the monetization of ill health and, you know, dependency. And we, we really have, I think, in reality, pushed back on that quite a bit. And you look at the runner in the park, you'll see our peers, the 50 to 60, 70-year-old in yoga class, you know what I'm saying, dancing Mm -hmm. in the arts and seeking, um, you know, a full and rich life to the end. But the marketplace does not serve that. So we have to create spaces where we are better served um, to facilitate that. There's a venture capitalist group that is looking at women 60 and over in their social entrepreneurship, funding and, 
you know, creating opportunities to build there. There's a, a series of services, like I said, and experiences that just have to be pulled to the forefront and made accessible. And as we build and create these new institutions, these new opportunities and these new experiences, literally getting down to marketing them appropriately back into the culture. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I can definitely see some of the things that you've already mentioned mm -hmm. being manifested in opportunities and events to bring older generations and younger generations together, cultural events and educational mm -hmm. events that show the wholeness of, of growing old beautifully, growing whole. Let me get mm -hmm. it right. Let me get it right. Growing whole. Whole and not old, right? Yes. We have an entire culture telling us that getting older means becoming less relevant. And, right. um, you know, we're actually living the, the pushback on that. But I really hope to create an institute that helps or dedicated to helping us navigate this midlife. And really 50 and 60 is midlife when you get, like I said, another 100, another 40 years added to your life. Longevity is a real thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to really figure out how we're going to best utilize those extra years that have been given to us or is either that or you just sit mm -hmm. for 20 more years in some right. sort of irrelevant way so it's right. a time when things start to shift in midlife and just like our teenage years you know there's sort of a jumbling up and a, and a reorientation and a empowering moments that come out of that and any moment of change is going to carry an opportunity for reinvention and for me revitalization mm -hmm. so you know we have to ask ourselves how do we want to live our life um, after the marketplace says you should retire or after the workplace as you retire, and we're hoping to advocate and change and lobby inside of workplaces that you need this wisdom and this knowledge and experience side by side with the youth that we, you know, empowered or a generation that's been empowered that is missing that component part. So um, hopefully, like I'm working on some things, but hopefully come out maybe with a beautiful swath of acreage on a farm where we all gather and have a variety of experiences that help us, as I say, create a roadmap to how we age successfully mm -hmm. and continue our life going forward. The roadmap of ascension to becoming whole, not old. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, um, I just want to say, as we conclude, you're the embodiment of what you promote. You took a, a long walk this morning. Tell us about your what you do on a regular <laughs> basis to keep yourself whole. Well, I have to be encouraged. I, I admit, and it's about transparency. Some days I'm very codependent. So I look for my friendships to walk with. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I have come to realize if I do not use my body, it starts to let me down. Mm -hmm. There is a time, there is a weakness. Unless we were dancers and athletes prior to that, and we took care of our bodies in those activities, mm -hmm. if you don't use this body, it is going to abandon you. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to give you a warning. You're going to go to get up from a chair and you're not going to clear it. Mm -hmm. You're going to go lift your leg to a stairwell and you're not going to clear that step and you're going to land in some possibly dangerous way mm -hmm. to injure yourself. So a body is designed to be used. And because of technology, we're becoming more sedentary. We're not farming. You know what I mean? We're not even in the industrial age. Mm -hmm. that allowed our bodies to be carried to the edge, if you will, of, of our strengths and, and a variety of, of applications that we have to be now preservers of movement. Mm -hmm. We have to be intentional and create things right down to our hands open and closed. 
Mm-hmm. And the only thing is closing around is a remote control. We're in trouble. If the only mm-hmm. thing is controlling, wrapping around is a phone and using two thumbs, we're mm-hmm. in trouble. Absolutely. We're in serious trouble. So in the group, I emphasize mobility, using your body every single day, trying to find a way to encourage us and create moments yeah. because I believe being together strengthens us. African-Americans and human beings in general, but African-Americans and Africans in particular cannot be separated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know we can't be isolated at any point in our life um and much less in a crisis and so um as i said that has presented a problem because i try we have to understand where people are Um, but i was talking to another amazing woman in our group and talking about doing for example a forest walk Uh, Mm -hmm. we have girl trek that i partner with and put a lot of their information out to see them in the landscape you know black women in a health movement that embraces 1 million women, there's, doesn't ha- you don't have to have money to utilize your body. You don't have to have money to do anything except to be there. And you can walk 30 minutes a day. You can walk and there's ways to stretch and use your hands in that walk, you know, to keep yourself uh, flexible, to keep your hands useful, to keep your ankles and your legs and your knees and your hips, these beautiful hips we have, high functioning. And it doesn't have to be lifting, you know, trees. It just has to be a stretch, a yoga move, you know, even chair exercises for those who may, of us who may have teetered um, into some injury or form of disability, if you will. There's still a way that we can bring our bodies forward and utilize them along with our minds and challenging ourselves. Again, the reality I'm experiencing with myself and others, we are out here and we're creating these moments. We just have to bring it all together and make it accessible and make us aware of how and where, you know, we can find these these opportunities to continue to live deeply and healthily, securely. Wonderful. I'd like to start a biking um, segment. So that would be great if we could just bring some of the sisters who are in Atlanta together when I come to Atlanta to do mm-hmm. some biking. That would be great. But um, yeah, yeah, cycling is a big thing. I saw Black America come back into nature as a result of COVID, as a result of the rebellions we were having. Mm-hmm. Um, my sons um, created a cycling group out of rebellion. They went into the resistance movement on bicycles so they can get out. And they've continued to ride. And then they start seeing other uh, melanated groups in the landscape cycling. It was freedom. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be one of the great health benefits and health movements coming mm-hmm. out of COVID. Uh, they're called Black Pedals. Okay. Um, and there are a number of those cycling groups um, of color in the city now. And it all came out of, if you will, a trial. Mm-hmm out of resistance and they agree to ride outdoors as a way to be safe i don't want to digress because that's a whole nother segment if you will um, we don't have to die we don't have to be sick we don't have to there's seven billion people in the globe who ain't dead Mm, (laughs) 6.9 billion of them ain't as they say ain't sick Mm -hmm. right um and, and it is about strengthening the immune system and so forth so there's ways to do that safely honoring where people's hesitancy is and then gathering up to strengthen each other. I don't. I haven't seen one report that said that rebellion created a hotspot or became a vector in the spread of the disease. Anybody? No. Didn't hear one thing when our children gathered in resistance mm-hmm. in large numbers, if you will. Mm-hmm. So Allah has a way of triggering our immune system through joy, through 
being together. But like I said, I don't want to be in the, I'm not suggesting you go in the middle of the nightclub, <laughs> you know, or in large gatherings of people you don't know anything about, but we have an orbit right in our midst, our families. Right. Mm -hmm. I saw families separate mm -hmm. mm. and, and go in their corners to try to wait this thing out, you know, and we had to call a beautiful group of elders who called us back to the center of the house, to the front of the house together. Mm -hmm. and created pods and commitments to honor one another and, and care for one another and be safe and not be in denial that we have a problem, we have a crisis, but this is how we're going to live through it. We're going to eat well, we're going to share our food, we're going to have dinner together. Do you know what I mean? We're going to laugh, mm -hmm. we're going to use our bodies mm -hmm. um, and all of these things and we're going to kiss the sun. Mm -hmm. And all of these things are immune strengthening and they can be applied to our aging as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Aisha, we're going to conclude now, but there'll be another time. And I know that we'll do some other things together collectively in line with what you're doing to support the mission that you have to push back on the stereotypes and the double marginalization of mature women of color and to create a movement where we celebrate the modern elder okay. becoming whole, W-H-O-L-E. And I As we as we grow. That's right. As That's right. So thank you so much for all that you do for the inspiration that you are, for how you embody your spirituality through your service and the various ways that you serve our community and how you show up beautifully and um, intellectually, spiritually. It's always a pleasure to engage with you. It's so much fun. I mean, yes. Yeah, it's so much fun. It's so much really fun. creative, deep bond. I'm so grateful for you. And, you know, all of this is strengthening, as they say, all of our laughter, all of our joy, all of the work, yes, uh, yes. all of the building. Mm -hmm. uh, we, as I said, we have a lot to do and yes. a long time in which to do it by the grace of Allah. May Allah make our endings better than our beginning. I mean, I mean. And I look forward to seeing you when you get here. We're going to take that ride. Yes, I look forward to it as well. Thank you so much, May. Thank you. Bless you. May you continue I mean, and be enriched and increase um, in your, your abundance and in your beautiful intention to, to serve and to remind others to be inspired in life and, and to keep that inspiration at the forefront of how they show up in life. So thank you so much. I love you. And thank you. I'll continue to bless your work. Thank you. And yours as well. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. All right, everyone, that's it for this edition of Authentic Heart and Soul. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Take care.